Welcome to Climate History, the podcast that explores what the past can tell us about the present and the future of climate change. I'm Emma Mosswild, PhD student in environmental history at Georgetown University. And I'm Dagmar de Groot, Associate Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown. This month, we talked with two of the world's leading tree ring scientists, Valerie Trouet and Amy Hessel. Dr. Trouet is Associate Professor at the Laboratory of Tree Ring Research at the University of Arizona. She's written a book, Tree Story, that Johns Hopkins University Press will publish in April. Dr. Hessel is Professor of Geography at West Virginia University. We talked about what encouraged Professors Hessel and Trouet to study climate change, what trees can tell us about the past and future, and the work that most excites them. Here are some excerpts from our conversation. I just, I really like looking at wood through a microscope. It's really beautiful. <laughs> it's really beautiful. And um, I, I don't know if, if it's the same for you, Amy, but also the the main process of what we do as treeing scientists is, is called cross-dating. It's pattern matching between different treeing series. And that's really like puzzle solving. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're doing your masters, you're looking at this beautiful wood, at the same time you're trying to fix a puzzle together and, I, and trying to solve problems. Um, and learn about uh, climate and trees, and I, I loved it. So I then went on to do a PhD, and I've never done anything else um, in my entire career, 20 years down the road. <laughs> um, I have started, um, I didn't start off looking at climate, but then I went more and more into a paleoclimate context as my career evolved, and, and that's kind of in line with wanting to really contribute to some of the biggest, bigger issues that are world is dealing with at the moment. So mm -hmm. realizing that I have a tool at hand uh, that I can use to answer some questions that need urgent answering. And Professor Hessel, did you also crave adventure? <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. Um, it seems to be a big part of what mm -hmm. uh, paleoclimatologists do because the archives tend to be located in far-flung places. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with becoming an archaeologist, actually, and I used to bury things in my backyard to dig them <laughs> up again later. Um, but then when I was an undergraduate and I took archaeology classes, I actually thought, this is way too tedious. I can never do this. And the irony is that what we do is probably, <laughs> is arguably tedious. more tedious. <laughs> Every Every ring has to be measured. Now with some of the isotopic analysis of the wood, we have to dissect the rings. So, um, but yeah, Valerie is absolutely right. Once you look through the microscope and you see the rings and you start traveling back through time, you realize what an incredible time machine trees are mm -hmm. and how they're just like sitting on the landscape experiencing so many different uh, environmental changes and it's just fascinating. Maybe you can describe tree ring science for our listeners and some of the projects you've been involved with that really resonated with you. Yeah, so in tree ring science or dendrochronology uh, comes from de the Greek words dendros for tree and chronos for time. So we use the rings in trees 
to extract information about the past. This can be uh, the past or the history of ecosystems, like a forest. Obviously, uh, tree still is about forests, but we can also extract information about climate and about people. So the, the three main applications of uh, dendrochronology are ecology on the one hand, where you look at uh, forest history, climatology on the sec uh, as a second focus, where you look at history of climate, and then thirdly, archaeology. Um, to look at human history. And so what makes dendrochronology so unique is that it really sits at the nexus of these three um, uh, fields that are relevant for our uh, future as, as um, for our Earth's future as well. When we are able to combine the history of past climate, which trees give us an incredible opportunity to do that and link to history directly because Tree ring science allows us to assign calendar dates mm -hmm. to individual mm -hmm. years in which the tree was growing. And so that allows like a direct tie to human history. Mm -hmm. And so when we make those connections, we can then combine the study of past climate with the study of human societies. And right now we're at a time when we really need to understand deeply how societies respond, the myriad ways that societies respond to climate extremes, climate variability, um, much in the way we created like climate models to help us like forecast what future conditions would be like. We almost need a similar uh, discipline that allows us to characterize the ways in which societies could potentially respond, how to build resilience, how did people do it in the past, what was successful, what wasn't successful, why, um, and that's so desperately needed right now. So what kind of information do tree rings tell us? I think there's a misconception that it's just only about temperature, maybe, right? So a good so so basic principle is that we use tree rings from cold regions, so from either high latitudes or high elevation sites, those are European Alps or Canada, Siberia, to reconstruct temperature, because that's where the trees, you know, uh, respond to summer temperatures. But we also use trees um, to reconstruct drought, but for that we go to a different region. So for instance, dendrochronology um, as a field originates in the American Southwest, actually at the University of Arizona where I'm at, where trees don't care how cold it is, because it never gets really cold enough for a tree to um, to suffer from cold. Um, what they do care about is how much water they get. And so in the American Southwest, we use uh, tree rings to reconstruct drought, past drought mm -hmm. and past mm -hmm. um, precipitation deficits. Um, for instance, one study that we recently did um, and that got a lot of traction um, and had a lot of attention from policymakers and the media was where we use tree rings um, from blue oaks in the Central Valley in California. And blue oaks are, you know, get to be about 500 years old and they're some of the most, some of the best recorders of water availability anywhere on the planet. Like you don't, it doesn't get better than that. They're like, there's not a dry year in California that happens without it 
generating and narrowing in those blue oaks. Mm. So they're very, very accurate recorders of past droughts. And we use those trimmings to reconstruct um, the snowpack in the Sierra Nevada in California, which is important because California has a Mediterranean climate, which means all of their waterfalls in winter. They don't have, like, unlike Arizona, which has a summer monsoon, California doesn't have a mo summer monsoon, so it really depends on its winter water um, for for agriculture and, and all other purposes. Um, and a lot of that winter water is stored in the Sierra Nevada snowpack. So we use those trees to reconstruct um, Sierra Nevada snowpack. Um, this is a study that came out in 2015 when California was in the midst of the 2012-2016 really severe drought. And so we knew um, that 2015 was a snowpack low on the, over the instrumental period. So they've been measuring snowpack for 80 years in the Sierra Nevada since the 1930s. What we now found using the blue, those blue oak tree rings is that it wasn't just an 80-year snowpack low, that it was a 500-year low. So over the last mm -hmm. 500 years, the whole record that we were able to put together using those blue oaks, there had not been a single year where the snowpack was as low as it was in 2015. Mm -hmm. So that really puts, demonstrates how we can use our tree data to put uh, current conditions in a longer-term context and to see how, whether they're unprecedented or not. Yeah, mm -hmm. and also to reach, it seems like a broad public with that too, right? Because right. Some, I think the idea of using tree rings somehow resonates more with the public than using other kinds of paleoclimatic proxy sources for some reason. Just yeah. the idea that these trees are growing and that resonates yeah. that registers that climate. I think for a number of reasons. One, because it's a very tangible science, yeah, right? right? You can, yeah. I mean, we cord a tree with a bunch of students yesterday here on campus, and you can actually, you know, you cord a tree and you see the rings right mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So you, you, and you hold it in your hand. It's not like you're not running a model and doing some computer, some things on a computer. You actually have the sample and the data. You can hold it in your hand. Also, most people, at least here in temperate regions, understand the concept of tree rings, understand mm -hmm. or know or have learned as kids that, you know, each ring in a tree represents a year, yeah. that you can count the rings in a tree and get an idea of how old that tree was. So, th so the basic concept of our science mm -hmm. is familiar yeah. to a lot of people, so that helps. Yeah, I think there's a certain charisma mm -hmm. of old trees as well. Mm -hmm. So um, if there are pictures of ancient trees um, that go along with the study, I think those trees tend to capture the imagination as well. There was a recent article in The New Yorker about the bristlecone pines, and mm -hmm. you know, I feel like those trees are definitely emblematic of something greater than you know, our own lives like we recognize the amount of time they've been on the landscape and there's just something magical about them yeah charismatic trees definitely <laughs> charismatic mega trees yeah. Mega <laughs> yeah yeah um and I, I wonder also if there's a rural part of this too because i wonder if kids in rural places somehow they i don't know if they've got more of a connection with the tree but certainly i was told growing up in the country about these tree rings and what they meant, and I was surrounded by tree rings, and you know these patterns in wood all the time. And 
that's important, right? Because a lot of this climate skepticism that exists in this country, I think, is located in rural regions yeah. that have outsized importance politically. And so maybe there's even greater importance that way. I don't know. Hmm. Well, I think there is, but there's also been a great backlash <laughs> against tree ring scientists, mm. probably for the same reasons that we've just discussed, why they're so appealing to people. They also seem to be sort of like an easy target mm. for uh, climate skeptics. Huh. I think that's waned recently in the last decade or two, but there's just been a long history of like, well, I can count the tree rings, so... Mm. I can make comment on your science. Yeah. So you don't um, need to be an expert to yeah, do this. Yeah. yeah, and so while, while we can communicate clearly the basics of what we do, it actually takes many years of training to be able to create a climate reconstruction, for mm -hmm. example. It's not an easy thing. There's lots of um, sort of pitfalls that, that can happen. There's lots of quantitative methods that are applied and you have to like decide, you know, which method you're going to use, and so um, it's not always as straightforward as just like counting rings. Yeah. Mm. So there's sort of like it's a double-edged sword, I would say. Mm. Almost easier to dismiss because it's perceived as straightforward, uh, softer, more accessible, more straightforward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're you do this work in teams primarily. You're scientists and you work collaboratively and from what I understand you typically publish collaboratively as well but um, Professor Chue your forthcoming book is authored just by yourself um, so I'm wondering about um, sort of how you arrived at, at that decision to, to write a book for a more popular audience um, with just one author. That book is Tree Story which is coming out in April? April, yeah, April. yeah, <laughs> very soon. Yeah, so I think, again, serendipity of how this book came to be. Um, I, it was 2017, I just started a sabbatical, and I really wanted to do something else for my sabbatical. I couldn't see myself doing the same old, you know, publishing papers, writing proposals, reviewing papers and proposals for while I was on sabbatical, but I wasn't sure what to do. And just at that moment, I actually got an email from an editor um, from Johns Hopkins University Press if I were interested in writing a broad audience book about my research. And my first reaction, my gut reaction was like, sure, that exists, surely that exists. <laughs> like our science of treating, of dendrochronology has been around for a century. It's, as we just discussed, it's so accessible. It's such a tangible uh, field of science. Surely someone has written a book for a broad audience about this. And I started thinking and I realized, no, you know what, actually there's not. You know, there's one or two books about dendroarchaeology, so about application of treatings for archaeology. Mm but it's very technical, <laughs> like it's <laughs> intended to be a broad audience book, but you start reading it, it's full of statistical equations. I'm like, why would a broad <laughs> audience be interested in this? And then there's, of course, there's there's academic books, uh, very good ones at that. But there's no, there was, until now, no broad audience book um, about tree rings. Um, and so I said yes, I said yes to the editor. Um, it was a challenge I wanted to, I thought that would be a, a feasible challenge for your sabbatical. Um, 
I quickly learned that one sabbatical was not enough to write a book. <laughs> um, but I'm very glad I did it. And as in doing that alone, that kind of came um, organically. Um, it's it's so it's not a edited volume. It's for a broad audience. I think it's important that it's one voice um, that tells a story. And for me, honestly, it's also important um, that. It's written by a woman, mm. so there's not enough women scientists uh, who write books, and so that's where I wanted to put my mark. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And your book is powerful because you talk about your own experiences in the field and in the lab, and kind of mix the science in with your own with your own story. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your personal experience that you weave into the book and the the discoveries that you made along the way perhaps the most memorable ones sure so i do talk about the snowpack reconstruction that mm-hmm. i just mentioned i think another um story that i like telling because these to me are like stories of discovery this is one of the things i wanted to do with this book is also talk about how exciting it is to be a scientist. Like, we're not only being attacked for being climate scientists, like, science as a whole is often being attacked. Like, people think it's elitist, some people think it's elitist, it's intellectualism and so forth. And I really wanted to say, like, look, we discover things. It is exciting, and it's an exciting time to be a scientist because we have all this computing power, we have all of these data, the things we can do, honestly, it is... Um, exciting. I've mentioned that word a few times. Before. <laughs> it's just that exciting. It's just that exciting. <laughs> I can't stop talking about it. But so one story of discovery to me really is when um, uh, we developed a reconstruction of hurricane activity in the Caribbean. So this is a story that came together with two of my colleagues, one of whom is a shipwreck dendroarchaeologist. So she actually dives for shipwrecks, extracts the wood out of the shipwrecks, and then uses dendrochronology to date those when those ships were built and then to extract information about um, wood use in in, in um, age of discovery, talking about discovery. Can, can you think of a cooler job description? <laughs> <right>? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you think being a dendrochronologist is cool? Imagine like, like diving to shipwrecks. <laughs> to do yeah, the pirates are there and the shipwrecks, the diving. Know, oh, yeah, yeah. Sharks probably are involved somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we, haven't, we don't have the sharks yet. We'll get there. Um, so I was talking to her at a conference and then uh, the third person at the we were in a bar, uh, serendipitously. Um, uh, the third person was my colleague Grant Harley, who is like me, a dendroclimatologist, but he has worked in the Florida Keys. And so he was talking about how he had a truing chronology from the Florida Keys that uh, he thought recorded hurricanes back to 1700. Same time, uh, Marta Dendro D- Dominguez del Mas, the the shipwreck Denver archaeologist, was talking about her shipwreck work. And as this conversation evolved, I realized there's got to be, like, there's a link between these things, between mm-hmm. shipwrecks and trees and hurricanes. And so, 
uh, if you really want the full story of this, you got to read the book. But we ended up with a reconstruction that goes back 500 years that combines boat shipwreck data and tree ring data to reconstruct um, hurricane activity in the Caribbean over the last, back to uh, 1495, back to mm -hmm. the first uh, ship that wrecked, a Spanish ship that wrecked in the Caribbean. Um, I do want to say, I, I'm not, I don't, even though I'm the only one who wrote the book, obviously not all the stories in the book are about my own research. Mm -hmm. So I, one of the people I interview for the book is, happens to be sitting here right <laughs> next to me because she has some very exciting stories um, mm. that some of the most exciting stories coming out of dendrochronology um, when when you discover what you know what happened around the time of Genghis Khan for instance in Mongolia yeah that was that was one of those uh, moments of discovery where you know you hear these stories about scientists they discover something by accident mm. and it was definitely the case so Neil Peterson and I were working in Mongolia reconstructing past fire history. And while we were doing that, we were driving around the countryside and we saw this uh, incredible landscape of um, volcanic rock and um, old trees. Mm. And uh, it looked real similar to a landscape that I've seen in the American Southwest that has some very long-lived trees on it. And Neil had actually been out on that lava field before, um, but just for a brief time, and they'd only sampled a few trees there. And I said, you know, we should really come back here. Let's go back. And it took like a lot of effort to get us back there. So we like, it's like a six hour drive from Ulaanbaatar mm. in central Mongolia uh, from the capital. And um, on our way back from the city on our second field trip um, Neil got sick and you know we we're like should we go and should we not go and we, we finally got out there and we we're like stumbling around on this lava it's really hard to walk on it's like this kind of like giant boulder field with an occasional tree growing on it um, and by the second day though we started to find these what appeared to be really long-lived pines and then, to our surprise, we also found um, what we call subfossil wood, which are logs that are laying around on the landscape. And rather than decomposing, they actually just get weathered in place. Mm. Um, and so those logs can be quite old, and we can use our method of cross-dating to figure out when those trees were alive. So we match up the ring patterns in the dead trees with the ring patterns in living trees that were alive at the same time. Um, and so we, we thought, oh, this could be really an interesting archive mm -hmm. um, to work with. So we did what we could sampling-wise, um, and then we went back to the States and we were working on the project we were funded to do, which is the Fire History Project. Um, and one day, like three or four months later, Neil sent me a text and he said, I dated one of those pieces and the inner ring date is 657 CE and I was like wow that's pretty old <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so his next text was ponies which I knew what that meant because we had talked a lot about um, the Mongol Empire at that time and the importance of horses in sort of Mongol culture and how that would have played an important role in the 
development of the Mongol Empire. And while you're driving around Mongolia, you know, you see lots of herders and they've got lots of horses and that's what they're most proud of is their herds of horses. So, I mean, we both were like, yeah, let's find out what were the climate conditions during the rise of the Mongol Empire. And it was pretty instantaneous when we saw the ring with values at that time in the early 1200s. Um, it was very obvious that there was an unusual time period of elevated moisture. Um, but it wasn't until we developed the full reconstruction, so we have almost a 3,000 year reconstruction for um, past, past moisture conditions in Mongolia. And then we can really say like, well, how unusual was it? And in that record, it's unprecedented. So there was never a period of more consistent moisture on the steppe, except for that one. Um, that started in 1211 and went to oh. 1225. So right during the uh, major expansion of the Mongols. What's interesting too, though, is that we also observed um, a very, very dry period um, prior to that in the 1180s. And this is when uh, Chinggis Khan was sort of coming of age on the steppe. And um, the historian that we worked with on that project, Nikola de Cosmo, he was almost more interested in that period um, because he felt like that drought may have um, sort of disrupted the political structure of the steppe and um, allowed for the rise of a charismatic leader. So that, that story is one of kind of unexpected discovery. We weren't out there looking for this story, but yeah. it just confronted us. Um, but also, I think, some surprising um, ways that we can think about how past climate affects societies, it's like really more complex than we initially think. Mm. So wetter conditions in the case of the Mongols, because of the way they were living and because of the way uh, it allowed them to concentrate energy in horsepower and in livestock, um, that potentially had a big impact on their ability to expand. Um, but also like this extreme drought, like how does that translate into disruptions um, politically in, well, in different societies. I think that's the thing. In, in climate history, I feel like at least 90%, maybe the number is more than that, of studies focus on, I would say, pretty simple connections between climate change and crisis or collapse or, or what have you. And, and this study part of it flips those relations on its head, right? But it also says, well, there is this other stuff going on that is more in line with traditional narratives in the field. And to uncover that kind of complexity, you have to work in a team, right? And, and I think that is still, for historians anyway, it's still rare. It's getting more common, but, but it's still rare. So, uh, and I know you've kind of both worked on these sorts of teams. So is there, in your opinion, a best practice for working in teams with historians, paleoclimatologists, archaeologists? Anytime I've tried to go it alone, I've gotten a serious smackdown. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's pretty easy to fall into these like meta narratives mm -hmm. without even knowing that you're doing it. And sometimes you step into a narrative or a, a like a um, debate that's happening in other fields, not your own, mm. um, that you don't even realize is happening. And so, you know, it can be really challenging. You know, you get these emails from other, uh, like, historians or archaeologists or indigenous people, you know, and, and they, they all, they're having an argument that you didn't know existed. 
Um, and so, yeah, you fall into these sort of, you know, it's like a pitfall. So it's really important, I think, to have a solid team of people who can keep you honest about the stories that you're telling. Yeah, I'd like to add, I mean, I think as with any collaboration between any scientists from different fields is like respect each other's expertise. Mm -hmm. I think that's super important. Um, we were talking earlier about some people think or get the impression that because treeing science is so, uh, you know, fairly straightforward to explain that anyone can be a treeing scientist. You know, it's easy to think that like a historian all he does is read books and, and sources. <laughs> I can be a historian. Like, I'm just thinking so, that people say so the same really, thing about history. Yeah, <laughs> so really, the key is to not think like, oh, I can do, I can do that. I can read that book. I can use those streaming data to go like, you know, I, I'm not the expert. Like, I'll, I'll let that person be the expert on that part of the collaboration. I'll, you know be expert on my part of the collaboration and talk and listen to each other obviously but like to yeah not overstep um. mm -hmm. occasionally though I have to say occasionally it might be worth putting the data out there um, so I had a, a colleague of mine talk to me about um, some work that he did in geology and he told me that there's sort of two kinds of geologists. There's like the historical geologists and then the modelers or quantitative geologists. And um, sometimes there's a discovery like in geophysics and the historical geologists uh, take issue with it because it doesn't fit their, their historical story, right? Mm -hmm. um, but eventually those data are, are real, so things have to realign eventually. It may be that the geophysicists didn't get the narrative right, but the data are what they are. And so at some point we do have to um, align ourselves or align the, the history with um, what the data are telling us. People tend to get mad. <laughs> yeah, it can, be, it can be rough. It can be rough. Yeah. But if you have like, if you have a historian or an archaeologist who can help you navigate that, it's incredibly valuable. I mean, yeah. How do you find those people? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Cold calling. They find us. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> we try. We try. Some of us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, with the Mongolia thing, uh, Neil and I actually cold called a couple mm -hmm. historians. And the first one just... I mean, I will not mention names, but the first one was super dismissive. Huh. And mm. so we were like, well, that person's not going to work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we called Nicola, and he listened uh, very calmly and patiently. And then he said, I thought something like that must have been happening. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like he... He had been looking for what was the destabilizing factor on the steppe in the 1180s, and then uh, what was the energy source. So he had kind of already posed those questions in his mind, and then the data seemed to align with uh, his questions or answer, address his questions. It's ironic because he's also, I don't know if this study was published before, and it must have been published after the study that, that you worked on with him, but he's also argued that uh, torrential rains stopped the Mongol advance in Central Eastern Europe and in, in Hungary. Yes, yeah. right. So it's this weird 
Oh, I think that's fascinating. Yeah, so I think it's really fascinating. I read that paper, and there's been some um, sort Push of counter arguments yeah. to that paper, but um, but I think it the the two together point out how even the same climatic phenomena can have completely or similar climatic phenomena can have completely different impacts depending on who is doing what mm-hmm. and why, you know, and how. And so it's it's overly simplistic to take like long histories of climate and look at several different groups of people and expect them all to be responding like in some correlative fashion mm. with past climate. I mean, I have no idea what teams <laughs> you're talking about. <laughs> so I think we have to be not so much cautious of that, but it it doesn't allow us um, to to learn what we need to learn right now. Um, that sort of um, uh, approach, I think, prevents us from a lot of learning that we could do. So what are the kinds of questions that are guiding what you feel like you do need to learn right now? And are those questions influenced by increasing collaboration with historians and people from other disciplines? Or are they influenced by the increasingly urgent question of climate change today? For me, I have to admit it's mostly the latter. Like, Mm -hmm. I I do think we are facing a a very big issue um, that I want to contribute what I can to. And so a lot of my research projects are motivated by gaps in our understanding. For instance, I've done a lot of fire history in the American West, um, there is potential to do fire history, tree-based fire history research in China, but no, no one's doing it. So oh. I'd yeah. like to, you know, uh, or I'm starting to collaborate with Chinese scientists to get that off the ground there because they have fire issues and they don't know their own fire history, whereas a lot of people are looking at fire history in the American West. Similarly, um, there's some... Uh, now I'm giving away my ideas. I should. Be <laughs> <laughs> um, we're looking into <laughs> uh, reconstructing drought in in near Cape Town using tree rings. So using tree rings to mm. uh, uh, show the drought history of this area that is really struggling with severe droughts at the moment. And again, they don't know how unprecedented that is, how much of that is related to temperature rise versus, um, you know, precipitation variability and so forth. So to answer those kind of urgent questions, uh, one of my career goals is really to see, I have this skill and this knowledge, how can I best and most efficiently apply this to some of our big questions that need answering? Mm -hmm. But you know, it's a lot of fun to work with historians uh, and to and to think while you're at it to think about how some of the answers that we're finding relates to human history. And I must say, that's also really one way to um, get a larger audience interested in um, in our research and in climate change mm-hmm. in general. Like, there's a lot of people who have a large interest in in history. Um, if you I think the connections between our natural world and our human history, I think that's a topic, in my experience, that interests a lot of people. And also, I can keep talking about this, but, um, you know, future climate change, it's a dire message. It's a 
bad news show. There's not much good news. And so thinking about it is hard. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so people sometimes prefer to hear about past uh, human history and things that have already happened and that are just interesting stories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than to constantly be reminded of the current and future situation of our Earth system. Uh, whereas it's a leeway to start talking about what we can and should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So. yeah, I think uh, I agree completely with um, the idea that a wider diversity of people are receptive to hearing about climate history versus climate forecasts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the histories of adaptation and resilience, I think, can provide a much more positive path forward for all of us. So instead of focusing on the collapse, right, and Mm -hmm. the catastrophic effects, if we can start thinking about how do we take steps forward, um, that's enables, that enables people to get engaged. Um, And so past societies really can provide some of those ideas and examples yeah examples of how how our society can take positive steps to build resilience i think that is important because a lot of historians of course are motivated by some of the same things that you are when they look at those kind of i mean it's been called experiments in the past right Mm -hmm. where societies try and weather climate change in some way and what that might teach us about the future and i mean i'm asked this question as you can imagine all the time about what the past can tell us about the future. Um, and the response, I think, is can be a little bit challenging when you're talking about societies that are hundreds, even thousands of years removed from our own, totally different footprint on planet Earth, right? Totally different technologies and capabilities. So how do you navigate those kinds of questions when people ask you, you know, what, what can past peoples tell us about the present and the future? Is there a right answer, or how do you how do you navigate that? I find it very difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've given that some thought, and I, I, I'm sure I say things that are historically inappropriate. Let me just say that. I'm sure I do too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I try to focus on um, sort of like the the big activities of people. Mm. So mm. things like how connected were societies in the past and connectivity is i mean that's just like a broad statement like what were their trade relations like um how diversified was their livelihood strategy i mean these things are not i don't i think they withstand the test of time in terms of asking Um, how resilient a society was. Mm -hmm. And I think people can connect with the meaning of those things. You know, like, what does that mean for us today? And I don't think we're that different, really, from previous complex societies. I mean, we're arguably more complicated maybe now, but, but it seems like there are certain activities, certain linkages that people had that made them more resilient and there's also behaviors that uh contributed to vulnerability Mm -hmm. like digging in seems to be one theme societies that dig in rather than change in the face of climate extremes 
seems to be a, maybe a not a great path to go down, like based on. I'm on board with that. Prior <laughs> societies. You know, you look at prior societies like the Angkor situation. Mm-hmm. They basically just kept digging in. They kept creating more canals and more complicated canals and greater engineering marvels to try and solve their changes in climate, which was increased drought and increased flooding. Yeah. And rather than sort of like opening the box up and rethinking, but it appears that they just kept down the same path until that was like a total roadblock for them and they couldn't they couldn't engineer their way out of the climate system i I find this obviously i find this stuff endlessly fascinating (laughs) partly because we used to have the same narrative for example the greenlandic settlements right Mm. uh of the of, of the norse and for decades, the idea was, okay, they just kept digging in. They kept doing the same stupid thing <laughs> they used to do when it was warmer. And then the little ice age came, and, and they were all wiped out. And, and recently, we're starting to find, oh, actually, they were much more flexible and, and, and resilient than we used to think, right? And, and in fact, they endured for hundreds of years as the climate changed, and they would march up 800 kilometers to get these walrus tusks. And, um, and so it was like multi-causal, right, the fact that they that they did eventually disappear. And I think we are finding more and more of that kind of complexity in the past, and we're finding it in part because people are working together in new ways, and I just find that super cool. <laughs> well, also, I want to add that I think that's one thing where we have a big advantage compared to previous societies, not just technologically, mm-hmm. but like they, you know, Ankur, you could think that they were digging in because they didn't know what was ahead. Mm, like yeah. all they knew is next year it'd go back to what how it used to be so they had an excuse for digging in we have no excuse we're the first we're first to actually have a very good grasp thank you thanks to climate science of what lays ahead of us and still we're digging in and that there that is just not very smart <laughs> mm. you know that's we're we're past societies didn't know what was ahead of them, um, whereas we do, and that is, I think, a very big difference. I, I, I did want to um, answer your question also a little bit in a, in a more of a climate-related context. Like, we often get the question, like, why study the climate of the past? We're in such an uncharted uh, uh, territory now in terms of climate. We're going in a direction that is unprecedented. Like, yeah. why study what happened in the past? And one answer to the question is to look at how we as a society uh, can react but also um, from a climatic perspective to understand natural climate variability we need to go back in the past Mm -hmm. like we've only been measuring climate using weather stations at the same time that we started messing with it so only using instrumental data we have no idea of what natural climate is like and it's not because we're messing with it now that natural climate is just going to go away. So it's still going to have an influence in the future as well. And a, a, I think a very nice practical example of that is the influence of volcanic eruptions uh, on climate, um, which we know from studies of ice cores and tree rings that vo- big volcanic eruptions cool the Earth's surface uh, for a couple of years. Um, and you know, as our climate problem is uh, increasing, we're coming up with more and more 
uh, with solutions that are more and more out there. And one of them is actually mimicking volcanic eruptions by spouting um, aerosols in and like artificially spouting aerosols into a stratosphere. So we geoengineering. Geoengineering, exactly. Yeah. Climate engineering, which for now <laughs> is a theoretical suggestion, mm -hmm. but as our climatic situation is getting more and more dire, it's becoming more and more of a, of a real suggestion. A lot of research going into that. A lot of research, but not a lot of paleoclimate research. Mm -hmm. So there's we have these data sets that can actually help us to understand what the climatic effects are mm -hmm. of doing that. Um, and I think that's one important reason to look at the past because, for instance, volcanic eruptions in the 20th century, there were maybe four that were big enough to create this kind of cooling effect. Mm -hmm. Now, four is not a lot if you want to do a statistical analysis or if you actually want to study what the effects are. If you look over the last 800 years, on the other hand, there's 30 volcanic eruptions that you can look at. So you really, for these kind of rare extreme situations like volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or hurricanes you need a longer record to be able to actually say things and that's where our paleoclimate comes in we create a longer record with more uh, occurrence of extreme events fascinating <laughs> well uh, professor Trey professor Hessel thank you so much for joining us thank you thanks for having us <laughs> yeah thank you To learn more about climate change in the past, present, and future, visit historicalclimatology.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at ClimateHist. Thanks for listening to the Climate History Podcast. <laughs>